What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. And this episode, we have something special. We have the sound designers for The Shape of Water, and they just got nominated for an Oscar for that work. So the team we're talking to today is Nathan Robitelli and Nelson Ferreira. Now, we're going to focus primarily on how they created the sounds of the monster, the environment that they worked in. The sound is pretty amazing, and I really hope they actually win the Oscar for that. Also, they work down the street for me, so I could probably just pop in and see the Oscar firsthand. I want to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. We just both enjoyed the Canadian Cinema Editor's EditCon 2018, something you should definitely check out next year. This year was pretty phenomenal. But with all that said, here's my interview with Nathan and Nelson. My first question would be, how did you guys get involved with this project? I mean, sort of in a roundabout way. I mean, we had worked with Guillermo, I mean, loosely on The Strain. We had done season one of the television series that he executive produces. And we're, you know, kind of gently exposed to him at that point, just because he was involved on a kind of tertiary level. And he wasn't there all the time. He was just kind of approving things from a distance, right? So we did season one. We went on to something else after that, didn't follow through on the series. And then the opportunity came up. I mean, I had sort of done a little bit of cleanup hitting, I'll call it, on uh, Crimson Peak because they had finished the post up here. But again, not working directly with Guillermo. And then the opportunity came up because we both worked with Doug Wilkinson, who's the post supervisor in Toronto. And, you know, I mean, the best in the business, really. And uh, he presented this to us and just said, hey, guys, this might actually be kind of a good fit. I don't know if the end game for us was that we eventually wanted to do a movie for Guillermo, but I don't see who wouldn't. So when the opportunity presented itself, we were like, yeah, let's let's get the conversation going. This sounds really interesting. And he just kind of gave us a verbal description of the movie and what the script would be about. It sounded wildly exciting. And, you know, he arranged the meeting and it went from there. I'd love to see a photo of my face when he gave us the brief synopsis of Shape of Water. Because if you describe this movie, it's hard to describe. When you listen to someone describe the synopsis of a fishman and a mute woman falling in love, it's a little out there. My favorite is always, how did they pitch the Planet of the Apes originally? Because yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's a whole planet of apes. Yeah. <laughs> but it works really well. That's the thing, it works. Just like this film. Well, I guess Yermo had the exhibit at AGO, and when I was there, one thing that sort of stood out to me was that he has passions in very many unique areas. So everything from bugs to the dead to just odd little things, including monster movies. So I'm wondering, when you guys first started talking to him, after you'd sort of seen the script and heard the pitch, what were your early talks like? What did he bring to the table to help you guys figure out what this was going to sound like? Well, I mean, the... What it was going to sound like, from, from where I sit, it, it, there's never really been a before and after conversation. Do you know what I mean? It's always sort of been before script, after script, because the script kind of laid out the blueprint of what this guy, what the creature was going to sound like for me and what he was going to be like on the screen, right? And as you talk to Guillermo or listen to Guillermo, whether it's in person or, you know, interviews that he gives, you'll notice that he's got this love for creatures. He's got this interest in allowing the monster in a movie to be the hero. And it sounds like he always has. And this was kind of his opportunity to make no mistake about that. He made a monster movie where the monster was a human, right? And, and, and the creature was this inquisitive, loving, curious, frustrated, at times confused entity, a river god, right? And, and, and it, kind of, it kind of let him reframe the more classic notion of what a creature is. I personally, like in hindsight, 
I look at it now and what I find really interesting about it is that there was this romantic take on it. And I'd like to know how much they kept that under wraps because it's sort of the rumor mill. I know that a lot of fanboys out there and fangirls whose mouths were watering because they saw this as a Hellboy prequel. Because, I mean, there's a direct correlation in those creatures, right? And they were waiting for that. And what they were instead handed was a, <laughs> a sort of homage to classic cinema and to sort of the Gill Man, the creature from the Black Lagoon, and, you know, a romance. It's interesting, you know, and I'd like to know if they were trying to kind of keep that under wraps. <laughs> we're talking about this creature, and he doesn't speak, but he creates sounds. And I'm wondering, how did you guys go about creating the sound of the creature so that it would reflect his character? Because that's one of the things that plays a huge part in developing him as a character. That's uh, it's nice to hear you say that. That was probably my biggest creative challenge in the movie, was giving him a voice and riffing off of the personality that he was given by Doug Jones. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again, straight from the script, he was never meant to be a roar equal scare creature. He needed to show tenderness. He needed to show all of these other emotions. And the only way I could really sort of see myself walking that in as a, a limitless vocabulary was to use my own voice as the base layer, which took, took a bit of exploration and a lot of warm-up. If I tried to do it right now, I'd probably pull a muscle. But yeah, it was, it was just sort of playing around, you know, with a microphone and a bit of solitude and, uh, and figuring out what kind of strange sounds I could make just with my own voice. And then I would modify those and layer them with animals and other uh, sound effects that I recorded, as well as with Guillermo himself. Guillermo offered to come in and, and do some recordings with us. And he gave us that beautiful sort of textured breath that the creature does. But as far as like the actual emoting, the, the tonal vocal presence, I didn't feel as confident knowing that I would be able to convey things like empathy, fear, you know, curiosity using strictly animal sounds. And so that's why, that's why I spilled over to performance and actually performing those sounds into a microphone. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, but I mean, you did those initial tests as a means of kind of selling them just on the approach to the creature and the response I think was so positive that it's like, well, our initial discussion involved, oh, look, this isn't something from a sound design library. This has to be performed. We need an actor here. And we were booting names around of potential, you know, actors who, you know, who do all sorts of creature voices in big kind of, you know, Pixar type movies. Right. And we were looking at that. And then Nathan shows up with these tests he did with his own voice and the response I think was so positive that it was like, yep, yeah, I think we've, we've solved the creature. This is the approach to take. A big part of that is that they did want to cast someone local. They seemed pretty yes. focused on bringing in Canadian talent. And, you know, as soon as they realized that their Canadian talent was the guy doing the editing, <laughs> yeah, no brainer. <laughs> but that said, I don't want to subtract from, because like, you know, you're right, the, 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 the test was a giant success. You know what I mean? And yeah, I mean, I was half trying to show them the process that I would go through. But, you know, it wasn't really worth half doing it. So I did it with the intention of, you know, this is this is going to be a contender. It's just that once they heard that, they didn't need to hear anymore. Sort of to expand on that, because it almost felt like in certain situations he had like a vocabulary. So when I think of like fully, you walk based on, on the person. So it's like you got to put on the female shoes or you got to put on the male shoes. You got to walk heavy to match the characters. So was there work in sort of developing the sounds, not to create a vocabulary, but to almost create the sound of emotion? Or was that more creating the various sounds and then manipulating them? 
I mean, I'll just say this briefly because this is Nathan's answer. But you just said the word. That's the word that came up. The first word that came up at our initial meeting was vocabulary. It has to have a vocabulary. So you guessed it. You got it right. Nathan <laughs> got it right. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of the process, it was live to timeline, basically. You know, the first layer was, you know, microphone hot, playing through and just running lines as a creature, but running lines that were obviously my best crack at conveying what I perceived to be the emotion or message that Guillermo was trying to get across. Now, that vocabulary needed to expand, you know what I mean? And it didn't really stop expanding the entire post of this film, right? Like the entire time I was adding to it, I was going back to the microphone, I was going back to the library, I was going back to, you know, different props and things that I used to finesse his sound. But the sort of base layer in terms of what you're saying, I didn't first record a library and then go back in editorially and cut it together the way that you would say a car chase. I actually performed each scene on its own. And in some cases, when I was doing embellishment sounds like his purring or the liquid rolling in his gills, those would have been treated like standard sort of library sound effects, as would the sort of, you know, existing sound effects library Examples like the cormorants and the swan and, you know, like there's I think a hippo in there. There are other animals in there that did get treated like effects. But in terms of the process, it was, you know, hit record, performed picture. Yeah. And, and it was, I think that there was even at least one case where I remember, Nathan, you had actually vetted because, you know, to build a sort of line of emotion through this whole thing with the creature, building a performance is what you were doing. And at one point, I think you even vetted the scenes with me. And I think Doug was there, too, because, you know, my background is the ADR performance actors, right, working with them in the studio. And so it's like, hey, let's have a look at this and let's talk about the performance of the creature and what we can do. Is it working and is it not working and what can we do with it, right? And we actually had a whole pass through the film that way in which we did that. It was very interesting, actually, because, you know, working as a sound designer, it's pretty infrequent that I do find myself in the ADR control room, let alone the booth itself. And so to be sitting at a sound design station with a post-production supervisor and a dialogue specialist behind me giving me notes was like an out-of-body experience. It was like seeing the other side. It was amazing to watch because, you know, it's true. I was able to get so much useful direction from Nelson and from Doug in those sessions. And that's just something that we don't often benefit from as sound designers. That said, there were also countless similar sessions with Guillermo and the picture editor, <laughs> Sydney. I spent a lot of time packing up my mobile system and going over to the picture room so that, you know, between reviews of the picture edit and while those guys were working on that, they could step out and come over and, and we would play through things and discuss the vocabulary or in a certain scene, if there was a lack of a certain, like if there was a phrase that we were missing or if there was a, an emotion that he was still reaching for and not quite finding. Yeah, there were a lot of hours spent as a full-on team at the picture editing suite. Well, Nelson brought up your background in ADR and dialogue work. One of the toughest things, now I've never done ADR, but I've been in the room while people are working on it. And one of the toughest things is getting the actors back into character and getting them into that rhythm and that beat. So what are some of the things you do to get characters back into character? Well, they come pretty prepared. I mean, there were no newbies in this movie, right? I mean, they know what they need to do in terms of getting ready for it. And, you know, we brought people back multiple times. So sometimes Guillermo was there and, you know, sometimes he wasn't there. Their methods are so different. I mean, they're infinite, right? So... Someone like Sally, she just came in and we covered the movie top to bottom. We just sat down and said, okay, next scene, next scene, next scene. And she just emoted 
for the entire thing. And again, it was funny because it was reminiscent of what we did with Nathan, right, for the creature, because we were trying to find emotion in nonverbal sounds. And so, you know, we had a lot of discussion as we went through it. Michael Shannon, a completely different experience. I mean, completely different experience. He's a very stream of consciousness guy, the way he acts like a method guy on the set. And he brings that into the ADR booth. So he's like, okay, guys, I want everybody out. Turn the lights off. All I want to see is the script in front of me. No one say anything. Play the scene and I'll just act the scene. And then you have Richard Jenkins, who's completely different, very technical, line by line. I mean, it varies from person to person. Sometimes you have to do a little homework in terms of knowing what the actor is about, how open they are to this process, because they all see it differently. Some of them see it as an opportunity to watch the footage, to alter, change context, change the performance. And others just dread it. It's just kind of like a a soul-sucking exercise. where they're taking all the emotion out of their performance. I won't say who in this case was that person, but there's one on every movie, let's put it that way. (laughs) But at the end of the day, they all brought it. I mean, it's among the best sort of ADR I've ever been provided for a cast. Now, one of my questions that I'm very interested to hear how you guys did this is sound plays such an important part of making the film believable. But you guys are given this extra roadblock of making this sort of fantasy world believable and the creature believable and all this extra elements to bring realism to this world. So I'm wondering, were there any issues that you encountered and how did you overcome bridging that realism gap? You know, I think uh, for, for, for a lot of it, making it believable had a lot to do with just sort of the tactile nature of the movie, at least from a sound effects perspective. It was using a lot of authentic sound, and what that involved was just doing a lot of recording. And that recording came from the whole team. Everybody pitched in, you know what I mean? I know, like, in terms of time-specific things, one of the cool little nuances that I like, that I don't know if this technology ever exists, and it plays a little bit, you know what I mean? But I know it's there, and so I love it. Doug Wilkinson suggested that for Peter Jenkins' TV, you hit a button, and inside the box, there's a little servo that takes a radio frequency and turns the dial for you. You know what I mean? I don't know if that ever actually existed, but it's a fun idea, and it speaks to the time. It's little details like that that make all the difference. And so I gave that note to one of the sound effects editors, Kevin Howard, and he went off and made a meal of it. Now, it's one of those sounds that's like a once or twice in a movie kind of thing. You know what I mean? But when you know it's there, you know to listen for it. It's special. And those little textures, things like that, or things like his art easel chair, the sort of rickety art easel chair, or, you know, um, the authentic bus engine when, when Eliza gets off the transit bus in the beginning, or the janitorial bucket, the, the tin janitorial bucket, all of those sort of textures kind of helped to build a world that was made out of metal and fiberglass instead of, you know, padded composites and, and things like that that we're used to today. So I think it came down to a lot of the, the sort of material choices, and that even translates over to Foley too, right? Because like one of the notes that we were given from Guillermo, which speaks to Strickland's character, is that this guy's really uptight. He wears tight clothes. He wears clothes that are like are very form-fitted to his body that should be ironed using starch, and his shoes are too tight, and you should hear them creaking. And when he's walking around, they should sound very clicky. The kind of the kind of clothes that you'd be a little bit uncomfortable wearing unless you were a military man. And so you give that kind of note over to Steve Bain and Pete Prasad over at Foley One, and you get the sound of Strickland's movement, which is 
if you're if you're paying attention, it's different from other characters in the film. But it sounds like those organic fiber textures that would have been used in a time. One of the other things I noticed was that the rain scene towards the end, it's very powerful and has a really unique sound. I was wondering how you guys went about sort of creating that overall feel for that rain sequence. I'll start really quickly. I don't have much to say about it because it's a great effect scene. I'll start off with the fact that we threw away all the production sound. So that scene was ADR'd from top to bottom. That was the first thing we did in November before the there was even a, uh, a director's cut. So at least Nathan was starting with a blank slate. We didn't have any production sound to cloud the issue at all. And I'll let him take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were some notes involved in that one. You know, it was very important to Guillermo and Sydney to make sure that all of the surfaces of the rain hits off to have their own voices. You know, rain hitting sand doesn't sound like rain hitting concrete. doesn't sound like rain hitting wood. You know what I mean? So that turned into a big conversation between Tyler Whittem and myself. Tyler was another one of the uh, sound effects editors on the show. And we had a lot of rain in Toronto this year. So there was no shortage of sort of all of us putting microphones up. But Tyler took on the lion's share of that. Personally, I have like a, a skylight that I could record while it was raining. And, you know, I've got a, a eaves trough that really needs some work. So it was spilling off under the, the, the pavement. Tyler at home did a lot of the very specific surface records. Because the bulk of the rain, like rain's out there, you can get libraries of rain. That's not too difficult to come by. But when you want to give it its own personality, you kind of have to get very specific. And so Tyler would go around his basement and his garage and his driveway with a, you know, a, a water, like a, a water hose or a watering can. And he'd emulate the sound of rain falling on all the different surfaces that he saw. He just made a lift, went through and recorded those things so that as the camera passed by them, you know what I mean? We could emphasize that texture, specifically that we place it where it belongs on the screen and have it coast past us. And that was all just the result of the conversation that Tyler and I had where we decided, listen, this rainstorm has to be a character in the film. It has to be another one of the players. It has to be sort of like, you know, the fishman's teammate because it starts raining. Now we're in his turf, right? And we need to make it feel that way. And so every texture had to be right. Every drip had to have a place. Now, I have two more questions for you, and one is more for those getting into sound, because you guys have done this amazing film, and congratulations on the Oscar, by the way. Thank you. On being nominated. <laughs> nomination, yeah. Yes. Let's, let's hold off on the other congratulations for now. <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering, how did you guys go about developing your ears so that you could sort of pinpoint things? I mean, I can only speak personally, right? It's something that I don't find any shortcuts at all in doing it. That's the one thing that... What I'm saying is I'm, I'm in my 50s now, and I'm not saying my hearing is better now than it was when I was young. Physiologically, that's almost impossible. But I hear better, way better now than I did 20 years ago. I mean, I, I listen better now. I could just, I don't know, I could just listen for things. And, and it's, I think it's uh, the ability to kind of hear tastefully, you know, whether it's an action movie or whether it's sort of a romance or whether it's sort of a quieter scene or something with all sorts of dynamics. I think it's just, it's something that's acquired and there's no shortcuts in doing it. It is literally working, working, working your ears and being in that sort of large number of situations, right? And training them. They have to be trained like a muscle. I mean, it is a muscle really, I guess, isn't it? So yeah. speaking from my point of view, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, it's amazing. If you spend your days listening for mistakes, the, the mistakes in your work start to disappear. If you're listening critically all the time at work, it's a blessing and a curse because you kind of can't turn it off outside of work. 
you mentioned Nelson that physiologically it's difficult to make a claim like my my ears are better now than they've ever been you know and, you, and no one's making that claim that said I mean I think we're at a bit of a disadvantage as well because I'm so used to being in mixed theaters where you know if you can't hear a line you turn down the ambient sound then I'll go and have dinner with my wife in a restaurant and I'm constantly asking her to repeat herself because no one's turning down the mix the music <laughs> and the, the crowd in the yeah. mix right yeah. now that all said for me, I think probably the biggest player in terms of the development of my ears and my taste would be I, and it's basically another version of the same answer. I go and see as many movies as I possibly can. I'm lucky to have a wife who also loves movies. And so we're in theaters once, twice a week listening. Well, she's, she's watching, <laughs> but I'm sort of soaking it in. My bar is being set by those movies. Right. And so I'm constantly listening and I'm constantly hearing new little textures, creative ways to do common things. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's just a different flavor of the same answer. Constantly listening and just working your ears. Now, I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone I interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> oh, man. I got this, man. Like, I got it like the Oscars send you, they're great. Like those people are great. And so they send you a whole questionnaire because they like to use the info. Like, you know, what would you say to someone who's afraid of following their dreams? What's your favorite movie of all time? All this sort of thing. Right. And on my list is my favorite movie of all time. I started with the road warrior, which is okay. not a guilty pleasure. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that movie, but uh, I'll say it right now. My guilty pleasure movies to watch. Like if it's Sunday afternoon and it pops on, I'm there. Love Actually. Amazing. Wow. I'm telling you, man. I've known you for yeah. over 20 years. I just learned something new. That's right. The mother of all rom-coms. Well done. I don't think I can top that. On the questionnaire <laughs> for Ampath, I just told him I thought that it was a mean question and what kind of monster would ask that kind of question. <laughs> There's so many movies to pick from. What is my guilty pleasure movie? It's going to be some stupid action movie or something like that. Something really goofy. It comes on TV. No matter what you're doing, you stop and you're stuck watching it. Short Circuit. Yes. Oh, Johnny Five Alive. <laughs> Short Circuit. I would drop everything in a heartbeat to watch Short Circuit on Sunday. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you guys. Thank you. And uh, best of luck with the Oscars. I hope you guys win. Oh, oh appreciate it. We do too. <laughs> So that was my interview with Nathan and Nelson. I'd like to thank the pair for allowing me to interview them, and I want to wish them the best of luck with the Oscars. I hope they win. Again, I want to thank Carly McKeating for helping me with this episode. And if you want to get in touch with us, it's info at AOTG.com or at AOTG Network on Twitter or Facebook.com slash AOTG Network. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>